This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, is sponsored by Economics. To quickly make sense of today's crop nutrition research and maximize your return on investment, visit nutrient-economics.com. That's economics with a K. Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. I'm your host, Stephanie Crowley, Editorial Director of Top Crop Manager. Our guest today is Robert Mullen, the Director of Agronomy, Sales for Nutrien. Hi, Robert, and thanks for joining us again today. Good morning, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're going to chat about some fall fertilizer application tips today. Um, So I'm going to jump right in. I've got a lot of questions, and I think you'll be able to answer most of them for us. So let's get going with that. Sounds good. Can we talk a little bit about the advantages of a fall nitrogen application, maybe specifically on winter wheat, or if there's just some general tips and advantages that it can can, can give to a field? Yeah, so the, the, the general reason that we would prefer to make a fall application specifically of, of things like nitrogen is, is where I think we're going to focus the bulk of the conversation today is it, it's no different really for nitrogen, phosphorus, or potassium, but it's it's really equipment availability. We have accessibility of fields, generally speaking. That's not always the case. Uh, this year is, is presenting some challenges with regard to some rainfall patterns and, and how that's affecting the harvest and, and how it's progressing. And then ultimately, how much time is a, is a farmer gonna have access to his ground as, as before we get into the, the really cold winter months. So equipment availability, uh, field availability, generally um, is better in the fall. And then spreading out that workload. Typically, as we start moving into spring, the ultimate desire for the farmer is is really to get seed in the ground and get that crop up and growing. So if, if we can spread out some of that workload and get some of that, that field prep that needs to be done in the fall prior to the spring, that's obviously going to be to the benefit of the farmer. Now, if we're talking about specifically a winter seeded crop uh, like, like winter wheat, the primary motivation for a fall application of nitrogen is to make sure that we're encouraging good tillering of that crop. The primary reason for that, the the tillers can contribute pretty significantly to the yield of that wheat crop. So we want to make sure we're creating an environment where there's an adequate supply of nitrogen, uh, promoting tillering so that as we get into spring, as that crop starts to move into into reproductive growth, we've got a few more heads that we're going to be harvesting from each plant. So again, a, a positive contribution to the yield. But those are the primary reasons that we traditionally think about a fall application of nitrogen or, or any nutrient really. Uh, equipment availability, field availability, and spreading out that workload, uh, just making it a little bit easier in the spring to just be thinking about seeding. For sure. And so uh, in terms of methods of application, what's the most efficient way to apply nitrogen in the fall? Yeah. So, you know, especially in this world of of 4R nutrient stewardship and and the realization that what we do on the farm does have off-target impacts on the environment and just trying to do a better job of managing nutrient inputs, this is a, a really important question. And something that's that's really being looked into on the research side and and just really trying to move farmers into a direction to increase the efficiency of utilization of the nutrients that they do supply. So it, the challenge with that we often find with regard to what is the best management practice for for nutrient input, specifically nitrogen, is the influence of the the prevailing environmental conditions. That's going to include the weather pattern and then also the the type of soil that we're ultimately dealing with. 
So it, it's really difficult to come up with a single hard and fast rule that everybody should be employing at the farm level to do a better job of managing nutrient inputs. But we do come up with some general guidelines. And generally, a, a fall banded application is, is a pretty good application. And it really depends upon the moisture regime. So if we're in a really dry environment, if we can do a, a fall banding application, that's actually one of our most efficient applications. It's going to be equivalent to a spring band. And when I say band, that's just uh, making an application to a very narrow zone, uh, typically with, with anhydrous ammonia, but it's not exclusively anhydrous ammonia. We can do similar things with, with urea. But in that drier environment, a fall band or spring band tend to be our best uh, application options. That would be followed by a, a spring broadcast and incorporation. And the primary reason there's a, a little bit of a disadvantage when you look at the experimental data that exists to that spring broadcast specifically in a drier environment, is we can lose a little bit of moisture with that tillage event. And that's really critical if you're talking about Western Canada, where our rainfall pattern results in very relatively low amounts of rainfall. We want to conserve as much of that soil moisture as we possibly can. Um, so in that dry environment, that fall band, spring band are going to be fairly equivalent. Uh, we're not. The other thing that we're not as worried about in that dry environment is we're not too concerned with nitrogen loss. The, the primary mechanisms that we have to, to try to manage is the leaching of nitrogen uh, and the denitrification of nitrogen. So those are going to be the, the two extremes of, of soil texture. The coarse textured sandy soils are going to be much more susceptible to leaching. The heavy clay, poorly drained soils are going to be much more susceptible to denitrification. In, the, in that dry environment, we're not as concerned about leaching and we're not as concerned about denitrification because we just typically don't get the, the heavy rainfall to, to really promote the law, those two loss mechanisms. So fall band, spring band work relatively well. As you may, sort of in this transition area between the dry areas and the really, really wet areas, fall band is, is still probably your best option with comparable to a spring band. Uh, again, the, the same challenges with that spring broadcast and incorporation, trying to manage um, that soil moisture, moisture profile and ensuring that we have an adequate supply of, of water going into that cropping season. As you get into the wet, the wet locations, um, you're, you're starting to lose the advantage and the benefit of that fall band. And it's primarily because of um, greater potential for some nitrate leaching, generally in the spring, uh, and also some denitrification. So again, it's more of an issue on your, your extreme soils, the coarse and the, and the fine soils. Spring band is probably your best option in that scenario. Uh, if you're in irrigated lands, uh, again, you're, it's probably going to be a fairly dry environment if you're relying upon irrigation. So again, that fall band and that spring band is really going to be your best options. When we're thinking about managing nitrogen inputs into these systems, these are all of the things that we have to take in mind when we're making our decisions. So the one thing that I didn't mention much of was a fall, bro fall broadcast and incorporation. Those can work okay on a, on a fall application. Uh, they don't tend to be as efficient as a fall band. So if, if we're going to make that fall broadcast and incorporation, the expectation is we're probably not going to perform as well as if I had banded that material. Um, and that only gets worse as the weather environment gets wetter. So these are really the guidelines that we really try to promote. And again, this, is, this all comes back to this 4R nutrient stewardship uh, concept. It's all about manage, managing the nutrient input to minimize its loss potential and maximize its availability to the, to the target crop that we're ultimately trying to grow. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, we're going to come back to end loss in a, in a minute because I do want to touch on that quite a bit. But you did talk a little bit about the types of nitrogen fertilizer that are better suited to a fall application. Can you get into that a little bit more, If whether anhydrous ammonia is better compared to, say, an enhanced efficiency fertilizer? 
um, what would you recommend in, in terms of the types of fertilizer? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's the difficulty of discussing for our nutrient stewardship is, is when I start talking about timing, I ultimately have to have a conversation about source. And then at some point, rate has to become a consideration and even placement. And again, this is the challenge that the farmer has in, in it really adopting for our nutrient stewardship is, is the understanding of the complexity of this of this system and how best to manage it. So if we're talking about types of fertilizer, obviously anhydrous ammonia traditionally has been our most efficient source. There's a, there's a couple of reasons why that is. Um, the, one of the main ones is anhydrous ammonia is actually, it actually acts as its own fumigant. So whenever I make an, an application of anhydrous ammonia, the bacteria that are responsible for converting that product into uh, a form that's more mobile, specifically into nitrate, uh, those bacteria do not survive terribly well in a, in a soil that has a high concentration of anhydrous of that ammonia. So those bacteria are not going to be as effective or active at converting that ammonium, which is ultimately going to be the first product of, of the initial reaction. They're not as active because of this uh, ammonia saturation zone is what we how we refer to it. So when I make anhydrous ammonia, I've bought myself a couple of weeks specifically in a cooler soil environment to allow for that ammonia to be retained and not be converted into a form that could ultimately be lost. So anhydrous ammonia is typically our most efficient for that for that one reason. The other reason is the depth of application. So typically if we're making an application of anhydrous ammonia, we're targeting that four to six, even down to eight inch depth of application. Um, the deeper we make that application of anhydrous ammonia, the, the fewer the bacteria that are going to be available in a, in a high concentration to convert that product into that nitrate form. So those are the two primary reasons that anhydrous ammonia has traditionally been considered the most efficient uh, form of, specifically if we're talking about fall nitrogen. Urea would be would be second, although the enhanced efficiency forms are going to be a really close second or a close third, and in some cases would be fairly equivalent to urea. The nice thing about urea is it's it's still not a, a nitrate form of nitrogen. That's really the form that we want to avoid for any fall application is we want to avoid those products that have nitrate. So that's going to be UAN, um, urea ammonium nitrate, which is a liquid product. We want to avoid the ammonium nitrate. That, that tends to be a product we see less and less of. Enhanced efficiency fertilizers are going to be that close second or close third. It's going to be equivalent to urea. Those, I'm, I'm speaking specifically right now about ESN. The, the, the primary benefit of that product is it's, not, it's, it's in a urea form, but it's encapsulated. So its release into that soil environment is primarily affected by soil temperature. And when we're targeting these applications, that's the, the next thing that really needs to be considered is, is what is the soil temp. So if I have cool soil temps and I'm supplying ESN, um, the breakdown of that polymer coating is going to be really, really slow during that fall and specifically over winter. It's really going to start to pick up some speed as I get into soil in the spring and my soil temps start to rise. That's when I can start to see that products uh, begin to leak some of that urea into the soil environment. So with regard to Products, anhydrous, anhydrous ammonia is probably our most efficient, urea second, and if enhanced efficiency fertilizers are really, really close to urea with regard to uh, how they're going, going, going to perform. I suspect, Stephanie, that at some point we're going to have a conversation about soil temperature and its influence on how do we best utilize these products. So it's, we're kind of getting back to that timing issue again, because we, we really want to focus these applications when soil temps are a little bit lower. But I, I'll try to save that in, until later. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that. Yeah, we've got, I do have a question on that. 
especially given, you know, at the end of September, um, some parts of Alberta just got absolutely pounded with snow. And so that totally changes everything again, right? Uh, as we get some of those early frosts and, and changing that soil temperature. So that could probably change up some of the implications as well. And the recommendations. Absolutely. So, yeah. Okay. So we'll get back. We'll come back to that again. Um, so soil temp for sure. I, I, I did say we were going to go back to talking about nitrogen loss and kind of optimizing the performance of fall applied nitrogen and avoiding that loss. Do you have any advice to farmers to follow so that they can optimize the performance of their fall applied nitrogen, avoiding the end loss and commenting on the maybe the prevention of loss? I'm, I'm probably going to go back a little bit to the one of the early questions we had with regard to what is the best method of application. So I, yeah. I mentioned fall banding and broadcast. And in that conversation, I was mentioning the importance of considering your, your rainfall pattern. That is That really is what dictates what my loss potential is. So mm -hmm. if if I'm operating in a fairly arid environment, and you know we could argue compared to where uh, the, to the eastern Corn Belt or eastern Ontario where there's a lot of corn and soybean production, um, you could argue that all of the prairie provinces are fairly arid. Okay, but th there's going to be sort of micro environments or microclimates within that region where there's going to be much more arid environments, say say southern Alberta, south southern Saskatchewan, going to be a little bit drier than the, than the northern um, latitudes. If I have a really, really dry environment, the timing of my nitrogen application is not as critical. Now, it, we still want to try to manage it and, and minimize loss, and that's where I'm going to sort of default back to that fall band is probably my best option to minimize loss potential if I'm making that fall application. Um, as I get to a, a wetter environment, the, the, the more at risk my nitrogen applications are if I'm making a fall application. And it, it's really going to be more problematic on the extremes of soil texture. So the really, really coarse textured, well-drained soils, probably not a, an area of focus for a fall uh, nitrogen application. And the heavy, really, the really, really heavy textured soils, the clay soils. Um, that are going to lay a little bit wetter in the spring and have a greater potential for denitrification losses. So th these are the things that we have to consider. So the, the other way that we can manage is paying attention to soil temp. The, the worst thing that we could po possibly do is make an application of a nitrogen fertilizer, regardless of form. I'm, I'm going to exclude any nitrate-containing fertilizers because I'm just going to assume that everybody's going to avoid those for a fall application. But if we're talking about urea, which is is actually going to be an ammoniacal form ultimately once it's converted uh, or anhydrous ammonia. Uh, the enhanced efficiency fertilizers we're primarily talking about ESN coated urea or maybe a, a, a super U product that's got um, some sort of a NDPT urease inhibitor and then some DCD nitrification inhibitor. If we're talking about those types of fall applications, we have to pay attention to soil temp. And the primary reason we say that is if I make an application of, of an ammoniacal form of nitrogen and I have relatively warm temps, that product is now again, anhydrous is going to buy me a little bit more time. But if I if I have a, a pretty good for or, or for those living in Western Canada, you'd like to see some 60 degree days or mm -hmm. plus 15 Celsius days in the in the in the fall. Right. It doesn't turn out that it's looking that way this fall. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> cold right now. That may be good for us as people living on, on the ground, but in the soil, that's a, a bad situation if I've made an application of nitrogen because that's going to promote bacterial activity. So those bacteria that are present, boy, you, they find that ammonium. They're going to start converting that relatively quickly to nitrate. And we don't, we don't ever want to create a scenario where I'm trying to carry nitrate through the winter. That's a big ask. Um, because you're you're ultimately setting yourself up in an environment where you're much more conducive to nitrogen loss. 
we really want to pay attention to soil temp, and it really depends upon the form of nitrogen that you're managing. So in hydrous ammonia, the typical rule of thumb that we've employed for years is if your soil temps are going to be below that 10 degrees Celsius and that four, four inch depth, and it only has to hit that in the morning. So we typically target that 6 to 8 a.m. If we can get our soil temps to 10 degrees Celsius or below, you can start making your applications of anhydrous ammonia. And again, the reason we say four inch and we target that 10 C is because that's where that application of anhydrous ammonia is ultimately going to be occurring, is going to be at that relatively deeper depth. We want that soil temp to be relatively cool where that application occurs. And even if we get some, and the reason we say that we consider that relatively safe is, if we're four inches down, that soil temp is, is going to be much less volatile with regard to uh, temperature swings based upon what's going on at the surface. Now, when you start talking about urea, it's a little bit different story. So we, we wouldn't want to target that urea application unless you can make that application to a depth of four inches, um, which my suspicion is is going to be a little bit more of a challenge unless you're talking about a strip-till application. But with urea, so if I can make my anhydrous ammonia application today, uh, just as an example, you probably want to wait another week before you make that urea application. We want the, the rest of that soil to start to cool as well. And again, we're, we're sort of buying time. And specifically, if I'm making that application on the surface and then I'm going to incorporate it, I really don't, I want to target those applications to soil temps are going to be a little bit cooler. And the reason we say that is because, again, if the closer you are to the soil surface, the much more volatile the swings in soil temperature that you're going to ex experience as a function of what's going on uh, above ground. So if we have if we have a 60 degree day at the surface or a 15 degree day at the surface, four inches down, that's not going to have much of an influence on that temperature. But at the one to two inch, it's going to have a significant influence. So this is why the general rule of thumb is if you're going to make those applications in the fall, make sure your soil temps are relatively cool. Delay your urea application a little bit later than what you would typically consider for your urea applications. And that's sort of the general guidelines that we promote to, to minimize loss and maximize availability of nitrogen for that sp spring seeded crop. And talking about soil temps, obviously, what comes to mind to me right away, too, is also the, the importance of soil testing that kind of goes in hand in hand. So can we talk about soil testing before a fall application and how soon um, your soil sample can be taken after harvest in terms of you know making the decision to actually go ahead and, and apply fertilizer? Yeah, absolutely. So th this is a little bit broader conversation now. Now we're starting to bring in considerations like phosphorus, potassium, even right. soil pH uh, to, to some degree. Um, when should the app when should the sample be collected? It's really as soon as you can get back out in the field. Um, yeah, I, I have seen situations where farmers harvesting and then within the, the next 24 hour period, they're back out there collecting their soil samples. Depending upon the acreage they have to cover, there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of additional factors that influence how, how rapidly you can actually get back into the field. This fall is is a bit of a challenge just because of the, the, the rainfall and the precipitation pattern that has been experienced. I can't just say rainfall because there has been some significant snow. For sure. Um, the precipitation pattern can can really make this a challenge, but there's there's really no no hard and fast rule with regard to how long you should wait. Now, the only thing that I would caution is depending upon when you traditionally or when one traditionally samples, you might get different information depending upon how your sampling protocol looks this year compared to previous years. All we're trying to account for and make sure we keep in mind is it's really not that huge of an issue in Western Canada with, 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 a, with a few rare exceptions. Potassium can be heavily influenced by how rapidly the 
the remainder of the biomass that isn't harvested. So the, the rest of the crop, the straw, the stover, the, the above ground biomass that isn't in the grain that's not harvested and removed from the field is a pretty potassium rich nutrient source. So if, if I'm traditionally allowing a couple of weeks before I, between harvest and my soil sampling, don't be surprised if I come in relatively quickly after my harvest and see my potassium levels a little bit lower than, than maybe I expected. That, that, has, that happens quite frequently. Um, so essentially what I'm describing is that residue doesn't have a chance to break down and I come in and sample. I'm not accounting for that going back into that soil environment. So my potassium levels might be a little bit lower than I might have expected. Phosphorus is much less influenced by that. You, you, you'll see a little bit of that, um, but certainly not to the degree that you, you will with, with potassium. And it's also because of, of where potassium is, is in the plant relative to the phosphorus. Potassium is exist as as the the positively charged cation in that in that plant material so as soon as those cell walls start to break down that material starts to degrade potassium leaks pretty rapidly back into that soil environment phosphorus is a little bit more complicated it's contained in uh, atp it's in dna it's it's in a lot of more biochemical structure and that product takes a little bit of processing uh, and a little more bacterial activity to break that material down and release that phosphorus. So the potassium is the one that that we really see the swings on. So if, as soon as a as soon as a farmer can get in that field and collect that that soil sample, um, that's that's critical, uh, specifically in a condensed season. So if if we're a little bit late with harvest, which there's going to be areas that are the sooner I can get in, collect my sample, get that get that sample to the lab, they should be able to turn that around in a couple of days, get that information back to me. I can start making my decisions and, and maybe try to make this fall application uh, before we get into frozen ground. Uh, we really want to avoid those frozen ground applications. And the, the primary reason we want to stay away from any sort of fertilizer application going on on frozen ground is that material just doesn't have a, a, a capability to work its way into that soil environment. It's going to be stuck on that soil surface for the bulk of the winter. So we really want to avoid those applications if we can. And if it's stuck on the soil surface, it's much more likely to be transported if I do happen to have a relatively high snow, snow melt event, or I happen to get those early spring rains and that material still stuck on the soil surface because it couldn't get incorporated. And now that material can move pretty readily. Those are the primary considerations. As soon as you can get in and sample, start collecting those samples. I know that's going to be a challenge this fall because of the moisture. And unfortunately, our, our soils don't just dry out in a 24-hour period. It can take a little bit longer than that, especially when they start getting uh, significant snowfalls. Okay, okay. And so, and talking about timing of getting back out there again, how important is the timing of the application of a nitrogen um, or other fertilizer following harvest? Yeah, so th the same rules apply. As soon as we, we have fields that are fit for that nitrogen application, go ahead and take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, again, I don't think that's going to be that fall. Um, there's obviously going to be pockets where they've already got the crop out of the field and there's may have even been some some nitrogen applications. I've been paying a, a little bit of attention to, to, to air temps specifically. I've been trying to find a really good search for soil temps and I haven't found one. I suspect it exists, but I just haven't found it. I really pay attention to, to Canada weather stats. And mm -hmm. just from looking at that, the, the last week has been relatively cool. Um, yeah. Obviously, that's the case if you're getting snow flying around in the air. But for those areas that if you can get that crop harvested, and, and, and if the field's suitable, I mean, the, the worst thing we can do is make an application when it's a little bit too wet, right? Um, right. Not necessarily from a loss potential, but, but for more of the damage that you do to the soil and the need for uh, a little bit more intensive tillage the next spring. 
and invariably we have those conditions where we make those applications we almost always regret them <laughs> but oh. we understand that in some some environments that's just our only option and we, we have to do the things that we have to do but try to avoid those wet soil conditions because that's just going to create more more tillage requirement in the spring that we're going to have to repair a situation where I've got some ruts in the field and things of that nature. But really, as soon as you can make that application fields fit, go ahead and run, uh, get those things done. Again, just be mindful of the things that we've already talked about. Know what your predominant, and you'll the farmer's going to know this, what their predominant weather pattern is. Those drier environments, go ahead and make those applications. Don't be worried about it. Sort of that intermediate, you can, you're going to be able to get away with that, specifically with that fall ban. Wetter environments, you probably need to be a little bit more aware, but make sure you're paying attention to what that soil temperature is. We want to make those applications when those soil temps are, are certainly below 10 degrees Celsius. Do you have any other final tips that you'd like to add? I think we covered a lot of information here in the last uh, few minutes, but uh, anything else about a, a fall fertilizer application that you'd like to equip our, our audience with before they get out there? It's just, again, just to, to reinforce in the farmer's mind, our desires as an industry obviously match up with their their desires as a farmer. It's obviously from a different scale, right? right. Uh, we really want to promote for our nutrient stewardship and, and improve nutrient management primarily from for the environmental benefit. I mean, that that's really why we as an industry are really promoting some of the things that we're promoting. But from the from the producer's perspective, the farmer's perspective, it's all about making sure that he or she is as profitable as they can possibly be. And I don't think those two are, are mutually exclusive. And, and in fact, I, I think what we would desire to see from an industry perspective and what the farmer wants to see um, are one and the same. And that is we want to make sure that farmers are as profitable as they can be so that they continue to be good customers to those of us that service them on the industry side. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm of the same mindset. And, and I think that we're all really playing for the same team at the end of the day. So thanks very much, Robert, for your advice and your tips today. We really appreciate having you join us on Inputs. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. Special thanks to our podcast sponsor, Economics. To quickly make sense of today's crop nutrition research and maximize your return on investment, visit nutrient-economics.com. That's economics with a K. To catch up on all of our episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.